once again, and thanks for having me. As Grant said, I, uh, I'm currently in Norfolk, Virginia. My family and I moved there. Yes, some shouts from the crowd. I appreciate that. Uh, my wife, Lindsay, and I moved there with our four kids. Uh, we have kids age 10 to 6, so if you want to know what that's like, it's as if you mix together feral squirrels, Sour Patch Kids, and aspiring breakdance artists, and try and get them to do anything, and that's our life every day. Uh, and so I'm glad to be here with y'all uh, and enjoy this space together. This morning, what we're going to be doing is looking at a passage from the prophet Ezekiel. And I remember when uh, I was going through seminary, my professor, Dr. Collins, had all these little sayings for each of the prophets. And for Ezekiel, he just said, the weird one. And we're going to be looking at a strange prophecy, one of his more famous ones, but a strange one nonetheless. And the question we'll be getting into this morning is, when we feel chewed up by this world, spit out, passed over, does Christianity offer any hope? What we'll be looking at is when we feel crushed by this life, does God even care? Will he do anything about it? So let me look with us and read for us Ezekiel 37, looking at the first 14 verses together. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the, the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you. You shall know, and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and the skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We are clean cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, one of the things you should know about me is I absolutely hate horror movies of any type, of any, of any like show, movie, any of the rest. And, and I roomed with a bunch of ROTC guys in college, and they loved horror movies. And I always found like, it was a convenient time for me to go do my laundry or do this and that and get out of there. I could just dip. I was very good at excuses. Um, but one summer I worked at Alpine Camp for Boys just kind of down the road from here. And I uh, figured I might get one from that. Um, but... Uh, we had a night off, and we went out to go see a movie, and I just jumped in a car, because who cares? We're just getting away from camp for a night. Um, 
And they chose this movie called The Strangers, which, dear friends, I highly recommend you never see. It's terrible, absolutely terrible. The premise of the movie is there's this couple who's in marital strife, and they go to this cabin in the woods, and then these, like, psycho people come and, and attempt to kill them. And so about, like, a quarter into the movie, I'm like, you know what? I don't think I'm going to like this, right? And so I start just, like, lowering down in my seat, put my arm up like this so I could close my eyes, and nobody can see me closing my eyes from that side. But uh, Dolby surround sound is very effective. And so I was just absolutely terrified to then go and sleep in a cabin in the woods. Like, it was terrible, absolutely terrible. And I say that because I think that if I was Ezekiel in this story here, I'd be like, like, wake up, wake up. Like, nope, nope, I don't want this vision. Like Nick Miller, like awkward moonwalking away from the Lord. Like, uh-uh, I'm out. Like, I don't, I don't want this. I don't want any part of this, right? And I think the more I like sat in this story, the more I marinated in it, I realized it's actually a lot scarier than just a zombie thing. That actually, when I start to look at this, I see those bones hold a, lo a whole lot more than just fear for me. It's actually me in that dirt. We see in verse 10 what he kind of reveals to us and shows us is that what these bones are, who these bones are, are the people of Israel, those who feel cut off without hope. And that's where when I look at this, I realize it's me. And this becomes a whole lot more real. This morning we're looking at is two things. We're going to look first and see death on the valley floor. We're going to start in saying, hey, how did we get here? Like, how did we become these bones? What's going on? Then we'll look and see how, like, we try and, like, duct tape the bones together ourselves, get our hearts going on our own, and how that often leaves us again and again even more hopeless than when we started. But then we'll turn and we'll look to life out of the grave. How because of Jesus, we're actually invited into a resurrection hope which trumps even death itself. That We're invited out into this world in flourishing in the name of Christ. So again, what we're looking at first is death on the valley floor and then second, life out of the grave. Let's look at death on the valley floor. And I think if you're anything like me, I look at this passage and if I read it, I'm just like, what is Ezekiel smoking? Like truly, like what is going on that you're having such terrible dreams, Ezekiel? You gotta change your diet, man. Um, and a little context for what's going on uh, for the people of God who received this word and who he's, he's kind of pre preaching it to is they're the people who have experienced the exile, have been forcibly taken from their homes, placed in Babylon, don't know anything about anything there. Um, and they've witnessed recently just the complete destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And I think it's something that's hard for us this far removed from it to understand, but what we need to do is remember the people themselves. These are the people that in their lineage is the promise of Abraham way back in Genesis 12 that the Lord would put them in this land. They have people in their family tree that wandered in the desert with Moses trying to get to this place. They have people that are their ancestors that were with Joshua taking the land, experiencing the fullness of the land under the monarchy, and saw the Lord fill the temple with his glory. Like, these are the people, and these are the people who saw, and that's a part of their family tree, and yet are the ones who again and again were constantly rebellious, stiff-necked, spurned the laws of the Lord and said, nah, God, I'm good. I got this. I'm going to take it on my own. And now they're experiencing the consequence of that sin. And they're experiencing the brokenness of that reality. And if I'm being honest, these people start to sound strangely familiar. People always say, like, the Bible's not very relatable, but, like, that sounds a lot like me and my friends. If I'm really being honest, rebellious, stiff-necked, I got this. I don't need you, Lord. And that's the beauty of this passage, is that our entrance into this text are those dry bones. That's us in the story. That's where we find ourselves. 
And so we need to ask, how did we get here? And the reality is we get here a bunch of different ways, right? There's, for some of us, we become these dry bones by just truly spurning all things Christianity. Some of us fly the flag of our own rebellion and say, Lord, look, I'm good. Like, I'm not even going to pretend. I know that I'm the smartest person around. And so my, like, sacred texts are my thoughts, my passions, my ideals. Lord, you can go kick rocks when it comes to my sexuality, when it comes to my free time, when it comes to how much time I spend on my phone. I'm good, Lord. I'm not even blinking an eye. I'm telling you, I am God. For others of us, we're a little less bold and brash, but it's the same functional religion. Perhaps for you, you've said, listen, I'm going to sacrifice everything on the altar of my GPA. Like that Sabbath thing sounded like a good idea for people a long time ago, but I got worked and I've got things to do. Listen, I have to get an A in this class so that I can have this on my GPA so that I can get this job and be just launched into the perfect life. And so either my parents' expectations or my own pride become my God. For some of us, we've lived the good Christian life. And we say, listen, I'm good at following the rules. And I've built this carefully manicured life in which I get to walk up the ivory tower of my own self-righteousness and look down on others. Listen, I can tell you all the ways that I'm better than that person over there. And brothers and sisters, regardless of how you got there, Ezekiel is begging us to see we are the bones. That's our entrance into the story but then from there, we're, I mean, the American can-do spirit just can't stop, right? Of just like, well, I'll get myself out of this. I can do this. And so we pivot and try and do it ourselves to get our own ways out. It's not that bad. Listen, I'm tired of feeling lonely, yes, but if I just start dating that person, then my life will be perfect. And so I'm going to answer the hole in my heart with that person over there. I'm sure they'll be able to feel it. They're a sinner, yeah, but, but they're, they're closer to Jesus than anybody else. You'd say, listen, I remember that sticky, oily feeling of the last time I went to pornography, but Clay, I just want to feel desired and desirable. And maybe if I go back next time, that'll hit for me. We say, listen, I should probably read my Bible, but honestly, it's just so boring. And oh yeah, Netflix, I am still watching. Right? We can't miss this fact that so often we try and restart our hearts with the very things that led us in this valley to begin with. That the very things that we know have caused us to be withering and dying is what we throw our lifeline around trying to say, please help us out. Don't miss our foolishness. That the idols of self-care and self-soothing and self-righteousness promise life and freedom while shackling us to themselves, demanding obedience, and walking us around in this desert until we fall. Did you see that in verse 2, how he described the bones? He said they were just scattered about. These aren't some, like, perfectly manicured graveyards. This is as if a battle had been fought in verse 9 when it talks about the slain. Like, that's who we are. We are those who have been slain by our idols. And we've just been left, dropped, right where we are. Some of you hear that and you're just like, Clay, I, I, I hear you, but I'm just so tired. I'm so worn down. I get it, but like, I really just, I want to believe that, but I've got work to do, and so I've found the place in the chapel where I can do my homework where nobody can see me. You hear me and say, Clay, I hear you, but I'm just utterly crushed under the boulder of my own shame. I know that the idol doesn't offer any hope, but I'm too weak to resist. I don't see a way out. The rut is too deep. It feels hopeless. I feel cut off. Some of you here, and you have all the prepared responses of the right answers. Like, I know how to answer this perfectly, and Calvin would be proud, but your hearts haven't tasted 
the sweet water of grace in Jesus in a long time. So we sit as bleached bones on this valley floor. I was looking and teaching this lesson uh, a couple months ago to our 7th and 8th grade Sunday school class. I was like, what do you guys think is the significance in uh, verse 3 where it says these bones were very dry? I love their response. They said, man, I think it's just they're like super dead, like real dead. And I'm just like, that's right. Like, that's exactly what he's trying to show us. It is not like uh, just a flesh wound from the Monty Python, right? Like, Like, we are literally, we're dried up bones. God doesn't pull any punches here. He says, you're only here because of your own sin, and there's nothing you can do about it. He paints a bleak picture. This valley's not supposed to be something that feels just like a horror movie, but this really painful glass of water thrown over our face. And so what we are called to do is join Israel in verse 11. The dried up bones, those with our hope lost, completely cut off. So is this this it? Right? Is that... The Christian life is to walk around resigned to failure and misery. No, brothers and sisters, the hope is he doesn't end the story there. He shows us that he comes and invites us to life out of the grave. I was born and raised in Huntsville, Alabama, um, just a little, a little ways away from here. I was raised in this wonderful home, incredibly loving parents, two great sisters, but neither of my parents are believers. And so the faith was something I, I didn't understand at all, and I was the kid who got invited to youth group by a friend. I'm here because faithful dads in my seventh and eighth grade small group kept answering questions, kept showing me the basics, kept coming back to the roots. And the verse in the passage the Lord used to knock the scales off my eyes and make me desperate for him was Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. It's this incredibly succinct picture of the gospel, but the verse that actually got me, the one the Lord used to tremendous effect is in fact Ephesians 2, 1. Way before all the grace and the beauty, it's Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your sins and trespasses. Brothers and sisters, the reality is Christ is never going to look beautiful unless you recognize that you're the one in the grave. You're never going to want grace as your heartbeat unless you realize that your self-righteousness has made you flatline. You're never going to find the words of God as living and active, as beautiful and life-giving until you realize that your idols do nothing but promise you more and more and deliver you less and less and deposit you on the floor of this valley. We're never going to see the beauty of Jesus until we see ourselves as the bones first. And so he starts there. But the basis of the Christian's hope is that he doesn't leave us there. And what's even more beautiful is the salvation that's brought about has nothing to do with us at all. Did you guys see in the passage the Lord's power, his incredible power? Here's the thing, no matter how bad I want it, I can't make a cheeseburger appear in my hand right now. Like, I want a Frisco melt. Like, that would be just incredible. I want it real bad. And I've got no power to make that happen. No matter how quickly I need to get to the airport, I can't clear up traffic on 75 or 24. I can't do it. Don't have that power. If I'm being real honest, I don't even feel real comfortable that I could change the oil in my car, right? Like, like I don't have power, and we're fooling ourselves if we think that we have the power to bring these bones back up. And here's the good news, is we're not relying on our power. Did you see the power of the Lord by just his spoken word through his prophet? Look with me in 7 and 8. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. Don't forget the God you're crying out to. 
is the God who spoke everything out of nothing by the very power of his word. Don't forget that we don't have power, but he does. He's powerful, and he's willing to bring that power to bear in your life, towards your hearts, towards your wounds. He's willing to bring his power even there. But he doesn't stop just creating these bodies, does he? He breathes his life into them. Look in verse 10. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Out of death comes life. Imagine how different that valley would feel then. Before, all you heard was the whistling of the wind over those hollow bones, and now what you see is an army, an exceedingly great army, standing on their feet rejoicing. If you don't think the Lord can handle your pain, your sin, your rebellion, look at this story, friends. He pours his life and breath into these dead bones, and they become an army. Brothers and sisters, why does that cross matter? Why does that empty tomb matter? Because Jesus clothed humanity on his divinity and came down for us. He came so that by his wounds we could be healed. He came not just to be a good teacher, but so that he could offer his life for me and you. He came so that he could be the good shepherd that climbs down into the rut of our rebellion, of our brokenness, of our ugliness, and put us on his shoulders to bring us to him. He came so that he might take all of our rebellion, all of our brokenness, all of our ugliness, and cover it in his beauty. He came so that he could stand in front of the wrath of God for you and for me. And so in the name of Christ, we can say, oh death, where is your sting? Do you see your Savior? Have you tasted his goodness? Do you see that he is both willing and able to do it? Our hope is founded upon him and him alone. And I love that because that means that it's not about our little New Year's resolutions, our whispered promises that we say, Lord, if you'll do this, then I'll do that. It's him. Do you see in verses 12 through 14, did you hear the emphasis that he laid there? Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you should know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. We don't hope in a gospel based on us hoping in it. We hope in a gospel based on the Lord saying he will do it that he has done it. The beating heart of the book of Ezekiel is found in just one chapter before this, in Ezekiel 36. In 25 and 26, it says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. When were those broken bones? Remember the finished work of Jesus. That he sings over us, it is accomplished. It is done in his love. Feel the Father's warmth and love towards you. Hear the Spirit interceding for you with groanings too deep for words. Know your God and know his love. Because when we grasp a hold of that, when we hear that voice call us out of that grave, we're invited to live these lives of flourishing and hope. Because when we're called in this, it turns everything upside down. It means your identity is not defined by how many likes you get on that Instagram post. It's because you're a co-heir with Christ and an heir of God. It means your faithful obedience to the word is not just so you can earn holy points. It's because the Lord, the one who called you out of the grave, says this is where you'll find life and life in abundance, and so you trust him in it. It means that you loving the outcast in the midst of this body 
You searching out that person everyone else is avoiding is not because you're better than everybody else, but because Christ sought you out. And you remember that he went outside the camp to bear your shame, and so you, with joy, move towards his beloved children. That means your worth isn't dictated by your GPA, your job, or your relationship. Your worth is established because you're a beloved child of God, and that he has gone to great lengths to bring you into his fold. Kind of in conclusion, uh, right out of college, I, I worked at a church in a small town in Mississippi, and uh, one of the things I loved to do was to go sit in the kitchen, uh, and there's a, a daycare attached to it, and I'd just sit there and just try and stay out of the way of the cooks and just listen to them banter. And uh, they had this one day, this giant thing of bread they were going to make in their humongous industrial mixer. I mean, it was, it's an incredible machine, truly. Um, and, um, and I saw it, and I was just like, oh, hey, I could be helpful. I know where like, the attachments are. I'll go, I'll go get one that I think will help. And so I run back over there, and I get this paddle, this big paddle that looked to me like it would be the most effective thing to mix. And before you start judging me, listen, Paul Hollywood was not in our vocabulary at this point in time. Great British Bake Off was unknown. And so I, I didn't know anything about anything about baking. Uh, and so I, I brought it to the cook, and I was like so excited, like, look what I did. I brought the necessary tool. And she looked at me, and she said, boy, do I have to teach you everything. And, and she said, sit down. And so I just, like, sat down on my stool, and I'm just like, oh, man. And she brings back the thing that I thought looked like the most inefficient tool of all time, the dough hook. Didn't know it was called a dough hook at the time, by the way. Um, and, brings it, and, and I tried my best to keep my skepticism off my face. But Lil snuck through, and she looked at me, and she said, it's doing more than you think it is. The question we asked at the beginning of this sermon was when we're feeling crushed by life, does God even care? Is he willing to do anything? I'm inviting you to see the stunning love of Jesus, that he's the one that endured death itself for you, bore all your shame, all your rebellion, and moves towards you in love when you feel the most despicable. I'm inviting you to hear the voice of Christ calling you out of the grave, saying, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. I'm inviting you to see that when you feel crushed, He's doing a whole lot more work with his love than you think he is. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for that love, that love which chases us down, that love which comes and breathes life over our dead bones. We are just thankful that though we could never earn it, you delight to pour your love upon us. Jesus, be magnified and glorified. As we collapse at your feet, come and fill us with your spirit. Give us your breath. Give us your life. Give us your hope. It's in Christ's name we pray.